Good morning and welcome to Her Turn, a program of news and information by and about women. I'm Franny Lyons. And I'm Sadie Minobi. On today's program, Boko Haram releases 82 Chibok girls kidnapped three years ago. We take a look at one of the world's few remaining matrilineal tribes. Iranian women candidates get shut out of the country's presidential election. Again. Stay tuned for all this and more on the Sunday, May 21st, 2017 edition of Her Turn. A new study in Ireland has determined that at-home abortions with pills appear to be as safe as medical abortions performed in clinics. Women who were only nine weeks pregnant or less participated in the study. After a doctor reviewed their information, they were sent instructions with two drugs in the mail, mifepristone and misoprostol, which have been used to induce abortions and assist in natural miscarriages since 1988. The results of the study showed a 95% success rate with drug-induced abortions. Complications that arose, like heavy bleeding, fever, and persistent pain, were statistically comparable to abortions performed in clinics. There were no reported deaths due to this at-home procedure. Experts consider this study proof that women are capable of managing their own abortions without requiring medical attention. This at-home procedure also takes the power away from restrictive anti-abortion laws, giving women power over their own reproductive choices when the countries they live in refuse to do so. The last remaining abortion clinic in Louisville, Kentucky, EMW Women's Surgical Center, was blockaded by anti-abortion extremists. Rusty Thomas, the leader of the group Operation Save America, was among the 10 protesters arrested under the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrance Act. The group is known for hosting campaigns and protests against women's reproductive rights, advocating for punishment for women who obtain abortions by charging them with murder. Kentucky has seen drastic deterioration in women's health centers in recent years. Planned Parenthood is blocked from performing abortions, and other EMW clinics have been shut down. Like North Dakota, South Dakota, Missouri, Mississippi, Wyoming, and West Virginia, Kentucky is left with only one abortion clinic. According to 2016 National Clinic Violence Survey, 90% of clinics experience anti-abortion activity, including protests by anti-abortion extremists insulting and showing fake inflammatory and traumatizing images to women walking by them. Blocking doors of a clinic is one of the most violent types of threats and is a federal crime. Nevertheless, 35% of clinics experience such activity. Former chairman and CEO of Fox News, Roger Ailes, died of complications resulting from a fall this week at the age of 77. He is remembered for, among many things, being forced to resign last year from the network he helped create because of allegations he sexually harassed female hosts Gretchen Carlson and Megyn Kelly. Ailes leaves behind a wife, a teenage son, and a number of pending lawsuits against him for his unscrupulous behavior. Normally, cases against individuals are dropped when a person dies, but since either Fox News or 21st Century Fox are named in these lawsuits, proceedings against his estate will continue with some legal challenges. Moving forward, 
Plaintiffs will have a harder time submitting harassing comments from Ailes as evidence unless there are sworn depositions or witnesses that can corroborate their testimony. Fox News will also have a difficult time in court since Ailes will not be there to deny the accusations against him. So far, the network has paid out $45 million to settle sexual harassment lawsuits against Ailes. Ironically, the financial success he brought to Fox News will continue to pay settlements for damages he did to his female employees long after his death. In a recent study conducted by the Center of Women in Television and Film, U.S. film festivals feature male-directed films three times more than films created by women. The study analyzed 23 film festivals held in the last year in the United States. 29% of the films were directed by women, which is 1% more than the year before and 7 points up since 2009. Women also acted as producers in 32% of the films. However, women only made up 28% of roles like writing and cinematography. The study's release coincides with the opening of the Cannes Film Festival, which is set to begin in southern France. This year, only three of the 19 films competing for the Palme d'Or were directed by women. Considering the number of Hollywood scouts who pull talent from film festivals, this low female presence in film festivals severely limits opportunities for women in the industry. In Nigeria, a monumental deal was made last week regarding the April 2014 kidnapping of nearly 300 Chibok schoolgirls by the terrorist group Boko Haram. The deal, negotiated by the Swiss government, the Red Cross, and Boko Haram, allows for 82 of the kidnapped girls to be released in exchange for five Boko Haram commanders. While this is great news, there are still significant challenges ahead. While in captivity, it was common for these young women and girls to experience extremely traumatic events, like slavery, violence, rape, forced marriages, and more. As a result, many of the girls have serious physical, mental, and emotional concerns that will require long-term counseling, rehabilitation, and medical attention. They also fear the cultural stigma associated with being pregnant from rape or being forced to have a child due to rape something previous Boko Haram escapees have faced. Many girls that have unwanted pregnancies from rape seek abortion care. President Trump's recent expansion of the global gag rule prohibits organizations receiving American global health funding from providing information about abortion care. This has made reintegration and rehabilitation for the Chibok schoolgirls even more difficult. The 82 girls from Chibok, Nigeria, recently released by the Boko Haram terrorist group, have an uphill road to climb to get back into society, a UN expert has warned. Amila Bula, the special rapporteur on contemporary forms of slavery, expressed deep concern about the plight of the 115 girls who remain in captivity. The UN has called for continued global support for the country's efforts to release, rehabilitate, and reintegrate all of Boko Haram victims, 
even as those who have regained their freedom struggle to regain their lives. Liz Scafidi of United Nations Radio's Gender Focus spoke to Bula by phone from South, of South Africa in which she spoke about the state of the newly released schoolgirls. No one has been allowed access to the girls, as I understand from reports we've received. Um, they've been kept in a safe facility under the care of the government. Did you speak to any of the families? Yes, when we conducted the mission in January 2016, we went to a number of camps in um, Borno State in the northeast where we met with a number of girls who had been abducted, not any of the Tibok girls, a number of whom had children, had babies as a result of the abduction. We also met with a number of parents, the Tibok families, up to about 2,000 girls have been abducted. How are these girls received by their communities once they are released? The people we met with in some of the camps also said to us that there are big challenges with with the girls being reintegrated into their families and communities because of the stigma and the discrimination and the marginalization that they face. At the time of our mission, two girls had been arrested for planning to be suicide bombers. Since then, there has been an increase in the number of girls being used as suicide bombers. According to the UN, Violence such as rape and sexual slavery has become a core element of the ideology and operations of extremist groups such as Boko Haram and ISIL. The United Nations has also raised concern about the prison of stigma faced by survivors of rape or sexual slavery. UN Secretary General Mina Mohammed stressed the need to redirect the stigma of sexual violence from the victim to the perpetrator. We see greater national ownership leadership and responsibility. More governments are formally committing to take action. Regional organizations are working in concert with the United Nations to add to this effort. This is all much needed good news. However, the truth is that we must confront what is the deep roots of conflict-related sexual violence that lie in fundamental inequality and discrimination against women in all contexts. Too many women live with the specter of violence in their daily lives in their household and families. Armed conflict only serves to exacerbate these prevailing conditions. Mohammed has said all our words and laws and resolutions will mean absolutely nothing if violations go unpunished. Thanks to United Nations Radio's gender focus for the audio used in the story. A 23-year-old female law student in India cut off the penis of a man who tried to rape her in her home this week. The assailant, who claimed to be a religious guru, convinced the woman's parents to trust him implicitly. He performed religious rituals in their home and took advantage of those times to sexually assault her. This last time, she took matters into her own hands and stopped his attempt to rape her by severing the man's penis with a knife. She is now receiving trauma counseling and is under police protection. The district police also revealed the assailant had other registered cases against him for sexual offenses towards another minor. India has recently made the news for other incidents of sexual assault. Several have also involved priests taking advantage of minors, as well as women being brutally tortured, raped, and killed. About 40,000 rapes are reported to the police in India each year, but because women fear retaliation, the actual number of assaults is expected to be significantly higher. One, two, one, two.
thousands of French women have begun staging demonstrations and signing petitions in response to a reported rise in sexual harassment and sexist remarks in certain French neighborhoods. These women describe an area of cafes, bars, and restaurants in the Chapelle-Pajol neighborhood as a no-go zone for local women. Residents report that the area has changed drastically in the last year, with groups of men and street vendors harassing women. Special operation units have been deployed to handle the situation. In January, the units executed 110 raids, which resulted in the eviction of over 19,000 vendors and 884 arrests. Counter-demonstrators contest these allegations of rampant street harassment. They believe these protests actually arise out of anti-immigrant sentiments under the guise of feminism. A local woman believes, quote, the majority of people in the area behave well. This is a witch hunt on immigrants, end quote. Last Friday, Iranians voted to elect their eighth president. Once again, it was a man. President Hassan Rouhani was re-elected out of a pool of male candidates. While he certainly has made significant efforts to expand social freedoms and career opportunities for women, the presidential position itself has effectively been barred from women. While Iran's most powerful political party, the Guardian Council, declared women would finally be able to run for president this year, the announcement has turned out to be a token gesture. 137 women registered to become candidates in this presidential election, but not a single one was chosen. The Iranian constitution does not specifically prohibit women from running for president. However, ambiguous wording has often been interpreted to mean that only men can run for the office. Women have been challenging this interpretation for 20 years. Most notably, 73-year-old Azam Talagani has registered to run for every election since 1997. She has been rejected every time. A TV station by Afghan women for Afghan women launches today in Kabul. Zan TV, or Women's TV, is staffed exclusively by female presenters and producers, the first of its kind in a country where women working outside the home still remains to be a cultural taboo. While their staff members receive threats and disapproval from the public and their own families, Zon TV hopes to represent women's voices, promote women's rights, and raise awareness of media rights issues. The founder of Zon TV says he sees large potential in female audiences in big cities like Kabul. A team of male technicians work behind the scenes to train female colleagues due to lack of access to media training for women. The station runs on a low budget, using basic technology in a small studio in Kabul, but it foresees the future providing more opportunities for women to work in media. According to National Sample Survey Organization and Census Data in India, it is estimated that more than 20 million Indian women quit work between 2005 and 2010. During that time, 24 million men joined the workforce. The sharp drop in women's participation in the labor force is shocking to many because the country has enjoyed steady economic growth. A study analyzing the labor force participation rates and educational participation rate among young Indian women suggests women prefer to stay home to stay in school longer rather than working at an early age. With secondary education expanding and social norms changing rapidly, especially in rural areas, more women opt to pursue further education, with no guarantee that they will eventually go to work. Also, as wages increase and the household income stabilizes, 
women drop out of the workforce since a man's income alone is sufficient to sustain a family. The study criticizes India's job market for offering little incentives to women because jobs are not fully inclusive of and attractive to women. runs the world? Girls. At least that is true for a few remaining matrilineal tribes around the globe. Her turn reporter Kathy Lin recently spoke to Chu Waihong, who lived with such a tribe for six years and has written a book about her experiences. Imagine a world where family is not defined by the man's bloodline, but by the woman's. Where women and not men are considered the heads of the family and the ultimate decision makers. This is not just a feminist fantasy. Rather, it describes the principal organizing feature of a tribal community in southern China called the Mosuo. They are called the Mosuo. Uh, and in Chinese, they are known as Nu Ren Guo or Nu Er Guo, which is the kingdom of women or the kingdom of daughters. This is Chu Waihong, author of the new book, Kingdom of Women Life, Love, and Death in China's Hidden Mountains. The book describes her experiences living with the Mosul for the last six years. Here, she describes the basic logic underlying the Mosul matrilineal way. A traditional Mosul family only comprises those with a direct female bloodline to the woman of the house, and she would be the grandmother of a three-generational family. So this uh, Mosul family is headed by a woman, the grandmother. And all her children, uh, daughters and sons, all have her bloodline, right? So they belong in that household in the second generation. And then when you look down at the third generation, only the children, both girls and boys, of the her daughters would have the female bloodline. So they form the third generation family membership. But the any offspring of her sons, uh, because they are men, right, and they, they can't pass the female bloodline down, any offspring of her sons, they don't count as family. Matrilineal practices are not the only thing that is unique about Mosul society. The Mosul also do not practice marriage. Wai Hong explains. So the way the Mosul uh, maintain the matrilineal structure uh, is this, and this is probably the most interesting part of their lives, is that the women don't marry the men in their lives. So a family is not like the rest of the world knows it, uh, a woman and a man getting together to form a nuclear family. So a male lover of a Mosul woman doesn't marry. He's not part of the family because he's an outsider having a different bloodline. And he just visits her at night for their romantic night together. And he literally is a visitor coming to her room. Every Mosul woman has her own room. Spending the night with her. And then he leaves 
in the morning to go back to his matrilineal household. If she gets pregnant with this man and she has a baby, it just belongs to her and to her matrilineal family. Not needing the husband part in this setup and not needing that man to be a father. So, I mean, some sociologists have called this uh, a society without fathers and without husbands. In this marriageless uh, world, uh, there is no need for sexual fidelity within a pairing of a woman and a man. And so uh, the Mosos have worked it out so that it can be anything you want it to be. That means a woman can have one male lover all her life, but he just visits at night and goes somewhere and it's the same guy coming back. Or if she wishes, she can change partners and she can have uh, several partners through the course of her life because there's no need for this exclusive partnership. This practice is known as the walking marriage. And as you can imagine, to an outsider, the practice of walking marriage raises some eyebrows. Some may focus on the number of sexual partners Mosul men and women may have over the course of their adult lives. But it's important to note that this practice does not preclude long-term partnerships either. In fact, in the book, Wai Hong describes many long-term partnerships between men and women. The important distinction, though, is that unlike what many of us are familiar with, marriage is not an institution around which society forms. And ultimately, men and women have much more freedom to choose who to be with. As a result, this creates a kind of society that has a sense of equality between genders that seems rare in our world. They don't belittle the men who have fewer duties around the farm or in the home. And they sort of indulge the men as, oh, well, they're always safe when they can go and have their fun. And they they don't put them down in the way I think women are put down in many patriarchal societies. So, yeah, it does have a sense of a more equal interplay between the genders. Wai Hong herself grew up in a patriarchal Chinese family and spent years in the male-dominated world of corporate law. Living with the Mosuo gave her confidence as a woman. You know, before I went there, before I got into this world, the Mosuo way of, of living, I always felt a bit out of place and a, a bit awkward as a single woman without kids and uh, in, in mainly patriarchal settings, right, all my life. But I think watching them and seeing how confident they are in this world, right, has has given me new confidence to go back to my old world. And I no longer, I really can say this honestly, I no longer feel awkward. I am now more confident as a single woman navigating this world of ours. And I'm very comfortable and grounded in that. I, I'm, I'm a much more confident woman and I'm comfortable in my skin. What is the future of a community with such a unique way of structuring their lives? Unfortunately, Wai Hong writes, the answer is not optimistic. The Mosuo way of life is being threatened by the introduction of modernity into their communities. Tourism is now a main source of income among the Mosuo, and many of the younger members are marrying outsiders, foregoing the marriageless and matrilineal ways. So what can we learn or hold on to from the very existence of such a community, even if its future existence is so bleak? Wai Hong offers her takeaway on this. What is nice to know is there is no one 
single way of living that, that exists in the world. There, this is one alternative, and they have succeeded historically, you know what I mean, in being different. Uh, patriarchy, a lot of people would argue, is the inevitable result of human development. Well, no, because look at the Muslims right? It's not inevitable. And it works within the principles they have come up with. Human society can be diverse and no one system should be forcibly enforced on another and that we should be accepting of our differences. Chu Wai Hong's book, The Kingdom of Women, Life, Love and Death in China's Hidden Mountains, will be available in U.S. bookstores starting May 30th. You can also check it out on Amazon.com. For Her Turn News, I'm Kathy Lin. Sources used on today's program include UN Radio's Gender Focus, The New York Times, NBC News, The BBC, The Indian Express, The Hindu, Business Insider, Newsweek, The Telegraph, The Local, RT News, and the Feminist.org blog. Today's fresh edition of Her Turn was produced by Joanne Powers, who was also our on-air engineer. Other contributors include Franny Lyons, Sadie Minovi, Minji Wang, and Kathy Lin. Now stay tuned for two and a half hours of women and music on Her Infinite Variety with host Cooper Talbot. For Her Turn, I'm Franny Lyons. And I'm Sadie Minobi. Have a fabulous day. I would